Today we uh, continue this series that we've begun a couple weeks ago called Dear Church. And we're calling it Dear Church because it is a study of those first few chapters of the letter of the Apostle John. We call it Revelation. And uh, he writes this to the churches in Asia Minor, an area where we know of uh, today as Turkey. And uh, John is writing to more than just the seven churches that he addresses in the letter. He's writing to all the churches there in Asia Minor. John was the bishop over the churches there in Asia Minor. But Jesus specifically speaks into the life of seven churches. And uh, we're looking today at the first church after having looked at Revelation chapter 1 and an overview of things last time. We're looking this morning at the first of the letters that he writes to the churches, the church at Ephesus. And Jesus is speaking to them about their first love and how they, they're, they're losing that first love for him and for others. And so this morning, I want us to stand together for the Word of God. In Jesus' day, uh, when the Word of God was read, uh, people in the synagogues would stand out of reverence and respect for the Word of God. And uh, so let's stand as we hear the motivation uh, that Jesus has for the church in Ephesus and why he's going to write the things that we're going to see in just a moment. It comes out of really the, the great commandment. The great commandment from Matthew 22, verses 34, where the scripture says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, and let's read this together. Let's read it out loud together. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then speaking out of that, Jesus on the night of the Last Supper, he's with his disciples in the upper room. And he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. These are the very words of God. Please be seated. I'll also say that in Jesus' day in the synagogue, they would read the scriptures, the Torah, from the scrolls for about 30 minutes or more. And then the person who was reflecting on those who gave the derashah, our version of the sermon, would speak for five minutes. <laughs> we have that reversed in our day, don't we? I will not go down that rabbit trail today. We can talk about that some other time. But in Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees there in Matthew 22, he tells us that as God's people... As followers of Jesus, as Christians, our first love is God. Love the Lord your God, he says, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Deuteronomy also adds the word strength in the Shema there in Deuteronomy 6, which he is quoting here in Matthew 22. And then he also says some words out of Leviticus that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to love brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we are 
in church this morning and who we worship together. We're also to love our neighbor out in the world around us. And can I say that when the followers of Jesus in the early church lived that, loving God and loving their neighbor, God used them to make a difference in their world. God used them to change their world. Even a world that was so intolerant, so hostile at times to followers of Jesus and to the good news of the gospel. And we talked about that, didn't we, the first week of this series as we looked at Revelation chapter 1. And we saw that half of Jesus, five of Jesus' disciples, after they left Judea and Jerusalem, went into this province called Asia Minor, what you and I know of today as Turkey. And at the time they went, it was one of the most evil and one of the most corrupt provinces in the entire Roman Empire, and within a few generations after them getting there, scholars tell us that the province of Asia Minor was 85 to 90 percent Christian. Isn't that amazing? It's staggering to me. And, and as I look at the history of what took place, we realize that the reason why this area of the Roman Empire became so changed was the result of Jesus' followers living like Jesus. Now, we've talked at times in the past about how Jesus' disciples were not 40-year-old guys with beards, okay? So if you're here thinking that today, that's not who Jesus' disciples were. In the rabbinic tradition of that day, Jesus operated just like the rabbis would. And they came alongside young men who were somewhere between the ages of 15, 18 years old, and they would call them to follow them. And the whole point of being a disciple who followed a rabbi was not being someone who would just simply learn what the rabbi learned so they could know what the rabbi knew. The point of following a rabbi in that day was to become like their rabbi. They walked so closely with them that they would have this expression that they were covered with the dust of the rabbi. They walked so close to their rabbis, watching them, looking at what they were doing and how they were living so that they could become like them. And Jesus' disciples did that. These were young teenage boys. We know from the words used in the New Testament to describe them that Peter was the only adult male in the group. The rest of them were teenagers. John, according to the words that are used there in Greek to describe him, was an adolescent. And they followed Jesus. And more than anything else, they wanted to become like him. And when they became like him and they went to Asia Minor, God used them to change their world. Because their first love wasn't money. Their first love wasn't material possessions. Their first wasn't love wasn't having a nice home. Their first love wasn't, you know, riding around in the most expensive camel or horse that you could find, right? Donkeys in that day were the transportation of the rich. We see all the Christmas stories of Mary riding a donkey to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus. If that happened, Mary was ripping God off later in the temple when she gave her offering of just a couple pigeons. Donkeys were the transportation of the rich. And it wasn't the first love that these followers of Jesus had. It was loving God with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind and loving their neighbor as themselves, even though they lived in a world and faced unbelievable hostility and opposition and persecution. They lived like Jesus, who from the cross could say what to, the to God about the people who crucified him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Rodney Stark is a Christian sociologist at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and he's written a history of the early church and why it was that the early church made such a difference in the lives of the people who they were around. And one of the ways, he writes about a bunch of things, but a couple of the things that really struck me was he talks about how in that day, in that part of the world, it was a custom for people who didn't want babies that were born, particularly girl babies, because in that day, girls could be a financial liability more than boys. And people in the culture in that day, people in the Roman Empire, would go out with their little baby infants that had just been born, and they would lay them out in the garbage dumps outside the city. It was infanticide. It was their form of abortion, a horrendous practice. And Rodney Stark documents how Christians in that day would go out, followers of Jesus would go to the garbage dumps, particularly in Ephesus, because as we look at Ephesus this morning, realize that Ephesus is no small city. It may not exist today, but in that day, in the days of Jesus' followers, when they went there, Ephesus was the New York City of Asia Minor. It was the cultural center of New York. It was the trendsetter of, of Asia Minor. It was the New York of Asia Minor. And, and these disciples of Jesus, these followers of Jesus there in Ephesus, would go out to the garbage dumps and they would pick up these little baby girls. They would take them home and raise them. They would adopt them. Brings new meaning to those words, isn't it, from Ephesians 1, where Paul talks about adopting us as his children. When he, when he writes that to, to the Ephesians, they get, they get, they understand what he's talking about because of what was going on in that day. And, and, and what was happening is these followers of Jesus would go and do this. And ultimately, as these girls grew up, there were in that area of the world a whole lot of Christian young women. And there were a lot of non-Christian young men. And when they would come together and they would want to be married, these Christian young women would lead these young men to faith in Jesus Christ and establish Christian homes and families. And that's one of the ways and one of the reasons why Christianity grew in the empire. Uh, another reason is that uh, another dynamic at work was when there would be plagues or diseases that would strike a city. The whole social structure of the city, all the mayor and the, all the city council people and all the leaders of the city, they would exit the city to save their own lives. It was the Christians who would stay behind and who would care for the sick and the dying, even at the cost at times of their own lives. And people in that part of the world were going, wow, look at these people, how they love each other and how they love us. And it drew people to faith in Jesus and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These followers of Jesus were so passionate about a love for him and a love for others. They were on fire. That was the passion that filled their heart each day when they got up in the morning to go about their business that day. Can I ask us, is that our passion? As we get up here in Johnson County and here in the United States of America? Is that our passion that fuels us each day to love God and to love our neighbor? That's what John is talking about when he writes to the church here in Ephesus in Revelation 2 that we are going to look at this morning. And as we do, can I say to us that I believe this really truly is a prophetic word for the church today? It's a prophetic word not only for the church of Jesus Christ here at Community Covenant Church, but it is a prophetic word, I believe, for the evangelical church and for the Christian church 
around our nation that is so much caught up now in what's going on in our culture with all of the division and the rhetoric and everything happening. And so let's hear the words of the Apostle John or the words of Jesus through the Apostle John who says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember we saw uh, last time that the seven stars are very possibly the seven pastors of those churches and the churches are the seven golden lampstands because the church are people, right? Not buildings, but people, and we are called to be the light of the world. And he says to them, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, he says, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious or overcomes, as we sang this morning. That's another translation of that word. To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how these letters are written to churches and and they're written to commend them for a number of the great things that they're doing for Jesus and for the gospel and for ministry. But they're also written to say, hey, there's some warning lights on. You need to pay attention to those. But here at this uh, beginning of this uh, uh, letter to the church at Ephesus, we see some commendations that Jesus gives the church. And he says, first of all, hey, I know your deeds. In other words, I, you are an active fellowship. You're involved in ministry. You are not a dull and lifeless church. You're not a church that just comes and meets for an hour or two on a Sunday morning and then disappears the other six and a half days a week. No, you are doing lots of ministry. There's lots of stuff going on, and, and Jesus commends the church for that kind of spirit and what they do. And he says, I know your hard work. And that word hard work carries with it the meaning of intense labor. So in other words, this was a church with people who worked diligently and regularly and wholeheartedly for the ministry of the gospel and for, and for the church. And not only did they work hard, but he says, I know your perseverance. In other words, I, 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 I honor you for the fact that your efforts are not just occasional, but they're ongoing. You believers in Ephesus, you've been difference makers, he's saying, for a long time. Church at this point is about 40, 50 years old. And uh, people in the church had been faithful through those years. Even in the midst of a lot of the hostility that was facing them from the culture and from the, the uh, reasons that we saw a couple of weeks ago as to what was going on in that place where they lived. And he's saying here, I want to commend you. Some of you are serving faithfully week after week after week. And then he goes on and he says, and another commendation, you cannot tolerate evil people. 
And, and what he's talking about there are people who are in their congregation who are tied up with living into the culture instead of for Jesus and who are doing all the things, the crazy things that were going on in that culture. We saw, uh, and we'll see again here a bit this morning, that Ephesus was the, the Vatican, so to speak, the world center of of uh, Artemis worship. Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility who people worshipped. Uh, Diana was her Roman name. And Ephesus was the place where this worship, the center of worship for Artemis throughout that whole region of the world was. And you can imagine being a fertility goddess, the kinds of things that went on as a part of the worship. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're coming alongside people in the life of the church and you're not tolerating that kind of behavior and, and you're coming alongside them. And when they get caught up in that, you're encouraging them to say, no, stop, live for Jesus. Live for him. You're, you're living the words of Galatians 6.1 where Paul says to the church there, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And watch out for yourselves that you're not also tempted. And that word restore is the word for fixing and setting a broken bone. And he's using that to say, hey, when people in your midst, their lives are broken as a result of buying into the culture and the world around them. You're coming alongside them. You're encouraging them. You're helping them. And he says also then another commendation. You've tested those who call themselves apostles but are not. You've found them false. In other words, you know the word of God. You are people who study God's word and you know it. And so when false teachers come into your midst and they start teaching something that just isn't true, according to God's word, you confront that. You deal with it. You don't let it go by. And then he says, sixthly, he says, you've persevered and endured hardship for my name and you've not grown weary. In other words, in the midst of all of the hostility that you are facing in the culture around you, you do not give up. You are keeping the faith. And he's saying, well done, way to go, Ephesian Christians, way to go. And then he says, lastly, in verse six, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And what does that mean? Who's he talking about when he talks about the Nicolaitans? Well, what was going on in that day was Ephesus was not only the world's center for Artemis worship, but Ephesus also became the center of worship for Domitian when Domitian the emperor demanded to be worshipped. And so as you went into the marketplace there in Ephesus to sell your goods, to buy goods, to buy food, to do what you needed to do to be able to survive, at the beginning, at the entrance to the marketplace, they would have little idols to Domitian and little idols to Artemis, and they would have some incense there. And before you could come into the market to buy and sell, you had to burn incense to those idols. Well, that creates a dilemma, doesn't it, for people of Jesus who are called to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind? And, and so there were a lot of Christians who were going, hey, we can't do that. But there was a group called the Nicolaitans, and who they were was they were Christians who kind of crossed their fingers, right? Put them behind their back and said, well, you know, Domitian doesn't really, you know, he's not a god. And he's going to find that out certainly when he faces God face to face. And, and Artemis isn't a guy. I mean, you know, Acts 19 tells us she's just a meteorite that fell out of the sky, who they picked up and they began to worship and they shaped into this female goddess of fertility. And so it's not real. So, so I'm going to just go in and I'll burn some incense. I mean, who's ever really going to know? 
And Jesus is saying, no, you, you oppose that practice. Don't get involved in the culture and the way that the culture lives. And, and you know, as I, as I think about this, this is an amazing church. Ephesus is like this really amazing church, isn't it? I mean, it's active, it's diligent, they're persevering, they confront sin. They, they, they discern false teaching, they're faithful to their mission. Over the long haul, they don't buy into the influences of the culture around them. I mean, this is an amazing church. Can I say, I think it kind of describes us in a lot of ways here at Community. And I think it describes a lot of churches in our United States today. I think there are a lot of churches here in our country that Jesus could say the same thing to. This is an amazing place. This is a church that's a tribute to its founder, the Apostle Paul, who planted that church, and then to the pastor Timothy who followed, and then Bishop John that came after Timothy. But Jesus says, hey, you're not perfect. There are some warning lights on. And look at what he says in verse 4. His concern, the concern that Jesus expresses in Revelation 2.4. He says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. The New Living Translation is a great translation of this text. It says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Jesus is saying to the church there in Ephesus, hey, over the years, you've abandoned that enthusiastic and authentic love for, for me that you've had and, and your love for others that characterized your life. And, and somewhere along the way, the, an erosion began to happen. Maybe it was because, like, like I said, Ephesus was the New York City of Asia Minor. And, and so there were all kinds of expectations and commitments and all kinds of activities that people could get involved with and their families could be involved with. And they got so caught up into living like the culture, church became kind of one compartment of their life. Their relationship with Jesus became one of many things in their life. And, and, and so... You know, it kind of became like a box to check off. I, I went to church. I did my thing. I, I did my Bible reading, and, and, and I did my thing, and then we get on with life, and we get caught up with the rest of the world around us. I don't know fully what it was that maybe was going on with the Ephesian Christians, but they had lost their first love relationship with God, and it impacted, obviously, by what Jesus says, their first love relationship with people in the world around them, their neighbor, who they were called to love as themselves. Al Martin, one of the commentators, writes this about the Ephesian Christians. Their heads were correct in their judgments. Their hands were busy in service to the Lord. But their hearts had become cold, lacking true affection. And Jesus is saying here, hey, I'm as much, if not more, concerned about what's going on in the heart level of our lives as I am about what's going on in the ministry of a church and in a building. And so as I think about this, I think this is a prophetic word for the church today, not only for community covenant church, but churches in the evangelical world and, and in, in the Roman Catholic world and in, in, and, and in churches all around our nation. I think there's a prophetic word here for us. 
And I want to say that as I share this word that God has given to us and to the church in America today, can I say I, I, I love this nation? Some of you who know me know that July 4th is one of my favorite holidays. I served in the Marine Corps. I laid my life on the line for this nation, and I love this nation. But can I say that there is a prophetic word here that, that God is giving through the church at Ephesus to you and to me today as Christians who live in this nation? And the word is, is that as God's people, as followers of Jesus, our priority has got to be as Christians a first love relationship with Jesus and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And yet as I look at the church today in the United States and I look at what's happening in the midst of this global pandemic that we're experiencing and in the midst of all of the racial and political division and all of what's going on, what we're finding and what we're seeing is that churches and Christians are getting caught up in all the arguments about all that stuff going on instead of loving each other in the way that Jesus calls us to. And he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Because it's not through our politics, it's not through how we handle the pandemic, it's not through a lot of things that we do in relationship to this world that the world is going to know that we're Christians by our love and we're going to have an opportunity to change the culture around us. It's by responding like the Ephesian church must have responded to this warning that Jesus gives them. They had to have responded because within a few generations after this, Asia Minor was 80% Christian, and that wouldn't have happened. Jesus would have taken away their lampstand, their light, their witness, if they had not responded. And I think Jesus is calling us as Christians today to respond as well. To not descend down into the arguments that go on in our culture and the division that goes on in our culture, but to go out from here and to love others in the name of Jesus. To love him first and then out of the overflow of that to love others. I mean, that's what the communion meal is about. It's a celebration of our love for Jesus and his love for us. And the reason we take it together is to show our unity and our love for each other. And the church, unfortunately, today in our nation is getting away from that. A few weeks ago, I talked about this new uh, idea going on in the theological world, uh, this idea of neurotheology and, and how uh, neuro th uh, neurologists are studying the Word of God and, and looking as well at people and they're saying, hey, you got the brain and, 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 and the right side of your brain is the relational part of it. The left side of our brain is the problem-solving part of it. And what's going on in our world today and is happening even in the life of the church is that Christians and other people, as we go through all these arguments about the pandemic and what's going on in our world politically, we're treating people and relating to them out of the left side of our brain instead of the right. And we're treating and relating to people as problems to be solved instead of people to be loved. We are treating people and relating to people as problems to be solved instead of people to be loved. I think this morning of the issue of masks, masks of all things, and masks are dividing God's people. After the first service, when I talked about this, 
One of the people from our first service came to me and said, their kids' church down in Wichita are having all kinds of division over masks. And the people that don't wear masks are calling the people who do wear masks Democrats, and the people who wear masks are calling the people who don't wear masks Republicans, and they're dividing over it. And you go, a new command I give you, love one another. Instead of being critical of each other, let people do what's comfortable with them. Be our brother and sister's keeper, as the scripture calls us to be. Jesus is saying, I have this complaint against you. You do not love me or each other like you did at first. He's saying, stop relating to people as problems to be solved, but relate to them as people to be loved. Don't let that erosion take place in our lives over an issue like this, because our first love is him. And out of the overflow of our love for him, we love each other, and we love the world outside. And if we're going to be used by him to change the world like he used his early followers... We've got to get our priorities straight. I think not only of masks this morning, but I think of the issue of Black Lives Matter and that simple statement that is so dividing Christians today, so dividing people of color from people who are, are Caucasian or white, so dividing ethnic minorities from other people. And we've talked about this in the past, and we've talked about how can we separate the value statement that black lives matter from an organization that politically and biblically a lot of things go on in that organization that aren't of God? But can we at least say black lives matter and not politicize that? So that we can come alongside our brothers and our sisters of color who are hurting today and say we want to come alongside you and support you and love you. We talked about that in a message a while ago where we looked at Acts 10 and Jesus' encounter with Cornelius, or Jesus' encounter with Peter about Cornelius the Gentile. And in Acts 10, Jesus is essentially saying to Peter, Peter, Gentile lives matter. He wasn't making a political statement. And so oftentimes today, People will go, well, your perspective is different from mine and yours just can't be right. And, and we focus on being right instead of on loving people in the name of Jesus. And as a result, the church loses its lampstand, loses its witness. I said a while ago, I'd rather be misunderstood by a few rather than not come alongside my brothers and sisters of color who are hurting today and saying, I love you and I stand with you and I walk with you. And I can say black lives matter without me having to or support the organization of which I would have a lot of disagreements with biblically of how they see the family and other things. And I think the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear this word today. I think of all the political division that's going on in our nation and all the rhetoric and, and all of the uh, stuff that's happening in our country today between people who are Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians or Green Party or Independents and all the things that are happening in our world today. 
And we get so focused on what's going on politically, and we lose sight of the fact that the early followers of Jesus, who Jesus is writing this book of Revelation to, they weren't caught up in all the politics and all the stuff going on. What they were focused on was loving God first and, and loving each other. And as a result of that being their focus, instead of descending into tribalism that's going on in the church today and descending into all these arguments with each other, they loved each other. And they loved people in the world around them. And as a result, a revival took place in Asia Minor. And Asia Minor, within 20, 40, 60 years after those followers of Jesus went into that province, became 80 to 85% Christian. You know, I think Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, and Jesus is saying to Community Covenant Church, and Jesus is saying to a lot of the evangelical church in our country today, I want my church back. I want my church back. And the way that you and I bring about change in our culture is not by revolt. It's not by revolution. It's not by uh, becoming abrasive and angry and angry with the world that's already angry and we contribute to the angry. I say some of the Facebook posts that I see from brothers and sisters in Christ and I go, stop. Love your neighbor. Jesus says, love those who hate us. Pray for and do good to those who persecute us. And when that becomes what we do, when that's how we choose to change the world, and that's how we choose to relate to the world, we will see God using us to bring more and more people to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, what these Christians did in the early church was they went into these communities and they didn't all of a sudden try to bring about change by the ballot box and voting and getting the right people into positions of power. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. In our culture, we have that system in our country today, and I'm thankful for that. And we do need to try to bring about change. So don't, don't, don't get me wrong when I say this. But what I do want to say is that the way that God used them to change their world for him was by loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then loving our neighbor as ourselves and loving each other in the way that God called us to there at the Last Supper. And Jesus is saying to us, as he said to Ephesians, the Ephesian church, I have this complaint about you. You don't love me or each other as you once did. And so what's the course correction? How do we change this? If you and I look at our lives today and we see how we've gotten caught up in some of this stuff that's going on in our world today, what, what needs to happen? Well, verse 5 of Revelation 2. Here's the course correction. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. In other words, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, remember back when, 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 you know, your love for me and your love for each other was the supreme value of your life. 
Remember those days and go back to that and repent and ask God's forgiveness for the times we've gotten so busy getting caught up in Johnson County culture or Western American culture and all the busyness and all the activities that Jesus and our relationship with him and our ministry to others becomes a back burner issue of our life. And repent, he's saying, of the allurements and the distractions of this world and, and repent of those times when we've gotten so frustrated with people. And I know I've been there. There have been times I've wanted to defriend some folks, you know. But, but God is saying, repent of that. Repent of that. And come back again to open-hearted reading of Scripture and times of unhurried times of prayer and sincere confession of sin and then out of the overflow of that freely offered service and ministry to those around us, even those around us who we might be the most at odds with. Because he's saying if you don't, you'll continue that cold-hearted slide and I'll remove your lampstand. You'll lose your witness. And I fear that's what's happening to much of the evangelical church in the world. This next generation, the younger generation, doesn't want a lot to do with the church because of how we behave at times. And we're losing our lampstand. And I believe that Jesus, through this word to the church at Ephesus, is giving us a prophetic word. A word that says, hey, come back to your first love. Come back to your first love and relationship with me and out of the overflow of that, love others in my name. And he says, if you do, there'll be a reward. Look at the last verse of Revelation 2, verse 7 of this word to the church at Ephesus. He says, he who has ears, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What an amazing promise that he gives us. And maybe we don't fully understand that promise. We've got to understand the historical culture of what was going on in that day to understand the promise that he's offering us. What's the promise that he offers us here? Understand that in that day, Artemis, the goddess of fertility, was a goddess who in the temple that they had, they had this big massive temple. In fact, the temple there in Ephesus, Artemis, is one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. And in the middle of that was this huge three to four acre area that they called the paradise of Artemis. And if you had committed a crime, if you had done something wrong, you had hurt somebody, even committed a murder. If you went into the paradise of Artemis, the legal authorities could not touch you. They couldn't arrest you. They couldn't bring you to judgment. It was like free forgiveness. And, and also in Artemis worship, there's what they worship, the sacred tree. It was an important part of their worship. And we'll talk a little more about that when we talk about Sardis. But they worship this sacred tree. And Artemis, uh, this goddess of fertility, had this tree involved with the worship. And you know what they called it? The tree of life. Amazing, isn't it? How years after the Garden of Eden... These people take this, the, the concepts of paradise and the concept of the tree of life and they apply it to Artemis worship. They're, it's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit of God and what God does. And John is playing off of that. And the people in his day understood that as he talked about how if we will come back to our first love, what God will give us is he will give us the right to eat from the tree of life. 
in the paradise of God. Not the tree of life in Artemis worship, not the paradise of, of Artemis that offers you a judgment-free zone, but the paradise of God through the tree of life that offers to you and to me forgiveness and grace. And you see, the tree of life he's talking about here is the cross. It's the cross. In Hebrew, there's one word for tree. It's the word etz. And so the tree of life in Hebrew, there in Genesis 1, is etz kayim. Etz kayim. And in Hebrew, you had one word for tree. But in Greek, there are two words. And so when they took the Hebrew Old Testament and they translated it into Greek, they had to make some decisions. And the most common word in Greek, in the Greek language, is dendron for tree. The least common is sulon. And, and, and so what they decided was that anywhere it talked about like a palm tree, a fig tree, an olive tree, any normal tree, they would use the word dendron. But when they talked about the Old Testament texts that talk about cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, they would use the word sulon. And John is Jewish, and so you'd think he'd go with Dendron. He'd go with Etz. That's what he knew. But he doesn't. He's making a wordplay here to speak into the culture of Ephesus in that day. And he uses the word sulon to talk about the tree of life. In other words, the cross. Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. And what's interesting is in the book of Revelation, the cross is not mentioned once throughout the entire book of Revelation, but about six times it talks about the tree of life, and the word that's used each time is this word, sulon. And what Jesus is saying through John to Ephesus, and what Jesus is saying through John to Community Covenant Church and to the American church today is that it's through the cross, through the cross, that we receive paradise. Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of the things that we do wrong. Forgiveness of those times when you and I depart from our first love. And we don't live as God calls us to. And so today as we come to this table, I pray that we will use this time as a time to reflect and to think about ways in which maybe over this past couple of years, We've become like Ephesus. And we've left our first love for Jesus, for brothers and sisters in Christ, and for people in the world around us. And we've become more like the culture instead of like the people of God, the early disciples, who as a result of living into their first love, we're able to make a difference and be used by God to change their world.